When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World... Title 42 expired on May 11, 2023. The Trump administration began the policy in March 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. The policy allowed U.S. officials to turn away migrants who came to the U.S.-Mexican border on the grounds of preventing the spread of COVID-19. Before that, migrants could cross illegally, ask for asylum, and be allowed into the U.S. They were then screened and often released into the U.S. to wait out their immigration cases. Under Title 42, migrants were returned over the border and denied the right to seek asylum. With the end of Title 42, many are concerned about what will happen with the volume of people entering the U.S. along the southern border. My guest recently sent a letter to President Biden requesting a state of emergency in Yuma, Arizona, due to the crisis at the southern border. Here to discuss what is happening in Yuma, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Mayor Douglas Nichols. Douglas, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the time and get to talk to you about this topic. Mayor, I'm curious, what is your reaction to the fact that Title 42 is no longer operative? I don't know. It's kind of one of those situations where we're in and we're not sure what's coming. We know where we've been. Just right before Title 42, we hit a near record number of apprehensions in Yuma in a single day. It was 1,550. Now, looking at what El Paso has, that pales in comparison, but we're also only 100,000 people, where I think El Paso's about a million people. And then we've seen this let off, and I think this let off is deceptive, and the secretary is trying to promote it as a win, as something that was something great. I actually don't think it has anything to do with that except strategery by our cartels that are running a multi-billion dollar business. How much of the illegal immigration do you think is influenced by the cartels? I think an overwhelming majority, probably 90, 95% of it. Hearing the stories from the people coming through, I've yet to hear a story about somebody who 
didn't engage the cartels, that didn't pay their mordida or their tax coming across. It's every element seems to be engaged in it. By leaving the border be open, we are creating opportunities for huge profits for the cartels, some of whom I gather have now moved from drug dealing to human beings. Yes, actually, they do a very astute job of doing both at the same time, playing one off the other. But it's literally tens of millions of dollars a week just through the Yuma sector. That's a week. So as you can imagine, all the other sectors and then what that is throughout the year, that's tens of billions of dollars a year. And so what you really see is a very sophisticated crime network in Mexico that is facilitating the transport. And by leaving our borders open, you're 100% correct. We're facilitating it. We're also facilitating the abuse, the rape, the extortion of all those migrants as they come through. If we shut it off, those opportunities go away for the cartel. And I think that's the big human travesty of this whole discussion. The National Border Patrol Council, the Union for Border Patrol Agents, called this crisis, quote, the worst sustained disaster that any Border Patrol agent, active or retired, have ever seen at our border. You've been in Yuma a long time, long before this crisis. Is this literally the worst you've ever seen? Oh, 100% without a doubt. We had a big issue in 2018-19. The bulk of it was over in three to four months. We're now at, what, two years and four months? How did they end it in 2018 and 19? Why was it over? Well, that was the Remain in Mexico program. It was also with the president of the United States going to the president of Mexico and saying, if you don't help curtail this flow by putting troops on protecting your own southern border, by being tied on all your visas and such, we're going to cut off your funding from the United States. It was really more of a relationship thing that, that solved that issue than it was one particular policy. But you have to remember, the laws are the same. Today, I mean, the laws haven't changed. It's always the policy that changes and how things happen. Project Streamlines, another great example. In 2006 and seven, we had some pretty bad activity going on then. Project Streamline said, we're prosecuting everybody to the fullest extent of the law. Everyone saw jail time. They were prohibited from applying for any sort of asylum for five years. That cut the flow pretty quick. So it is controllable if we want to control it. I believe it is because we've seen it done in previous administrations and under the exact same laws that are in the book. Congress has not passed a single immigration law in decades. And so this is all about policy and the willingness of an administration to do something. Is all this focus on Title 42 misleading? It's a little bit misleading. It's one of those things that it's the fear of the unknown, right? We've been under Title 42 the whole time President Biden's been in office. And so we have the intel of the stories of 600,000 people amassing along the southern border on the other side and the, the Darien Gap really seeing incredible amount of traffic. But at the end of the day, this is a business. And the way I look at it is the cartels are saying, yeah, we're going to use Title 42 to help push a bunch of people through, which they did. So we're going to create this big buzz. And then as Title 42 sunsets, we're going to lessen the flow through to about 600 a day, for instance, in Yuma. But that's still 20 to 30 times more than what we would normally see. So it's not normal. It's just kind of moving the expectation that it's not 4,000 a day. Oh, that's great. But it's not normal. Is this the cartels actually playing us? 
I believe 100% that they're playing us. When you have a multi-billion dollar business, you're not doing this out of the backseat of a car or, you know, these are not just thugs walking around the street, just bullying people. These people know what they're doing. They've been doing it for decades. We see it in small bits. When they want to get drugs through, they'll manage the flow along the border so it pulls resources away from where they want to pull the drugs. We see this time and time again. That's not a sign of a company or an organization that doesn't know what it's doing. It fully knows how to operate and keep the attention where they need it. If the cartels are this successful and are making this much money, to what extent do you think they've actually penetrated the U.S. itself? That's a really good question, and I struggle with understanding that. I don't know, to be frank. I guess I'm an optimist, and I love my country, and I hate to think anyone would be influenced from that perspective. But as in any big corporation or any big effort, there's definitely going to be unintended consequences, and there's going to be influences. Probably, my guess is probably not direct, but somehow they end up influencing people on this side of the border. I've always wondered to what degree the drug selling network that they operate isn't also, in a sense, a potential for their involvement in the U.S. That is, if we were truly to declare war on the cartel, to what extent would they declare war back? I think it would be full on. There's a bit of mix between some of the cartel members. The equipment they use has a strange government appeal to it. It's not what you'd pick up at your local gun store and that kind of thing. So I believe that's part of the reason why it doesn't get solved because of the amount of money that it flows through Mexico in particular. There's a sense that Mexico is in danger, particularly with the current president, of becoming sort of a narco state. That is correct. He's nationalized the police force. They control the border so they don't have an independent border law enforcement anymore. Everything is now the national police, the army and the Marines. And so from that perspective, it gives him a strong control, but then that centralizes processes and lets larger organizations work more efficiently by having a nationalized process. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick 
and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March to the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can pre-order March to the Majority right now at Gingrich360.com slash book, and it'll be shipped directly to you on June 6th. Don't miss out on this special offer to pre-order my new book today. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. You did a podcast with us in January of 2022 on the border crisis in Yuma. How much have things gotten worse since January of 22. If I can remember back that far, I think the average crossing at that time was probably about five to 600 people a day. It had then increased to an average of about 1,000 people a day by a year later. And then it dropped off just right after the first of this year. So we've seen some pretty high, significant number of increases. And then just this last week, we had street releases. We had two days of which Border Patrol was over capacity and our nonprofit that's been handling all the releases is over capacity. And so they had to release, let's see, about 280, 350 people to the streets. So that's a definitely a different thing. Well, we haven't seen any street releases since the beginning of this in 2021, in I'd say March of 2021. So that's a big concern. We're now into a situation where the numbers seem to be, again, back under some sort of manageable chaos. But we're only two days away from having street releases again. Street releases, do you mean just literally they open the door and people just walk out? 
So yeah, essentially, Border Patrol processes them and then gives them some either parole paperwork or release upon their own recognizance paperwork. And there's no nonprofit to receive them. They just drop them off in a location where they think they could get some services because the Border Patrol station here is kind of remote. It's in the city, but it's not near any services. But that's essentially what they do. So then do they catch a bus or do they stay in Yuma or what happens? A lot of them catch a bus or a plane. The real issue is the transportation options out of Yuma aren't great. So if you get start getting a lot of numbers, you end up with people that are hanging around. None of them want to stay here. But if they can't get transportation out and they don't have resources, they're going to end up kind of adding to the homeless scenario. And as people trying to provide for themselves, you know, that can end up in some bad situations. What percent of your homeless do you think are illegal immigrants? It's a really good question. I don't know that we've ever looked at that. I don't think any of them are truly, at this point, newly crossed. They might have been here for a while if they're still out in the homeless population. But the majority of those that cross now, they don't want to stay here. They've got a destination to be at. So they're heading to that. On May 11th, you wrote a letter to the Biden administration urging the administration to declare a national emergency on the border. What led you to decide to write the letter? It was two words. I'm done is kind of my response. I'm like, I'm done. I don't know what else to do. And I knew that a lot of the things I was asking for were going to be more facilitated or easily facilitated through a declaration of national emergency. So I don't know, cut into the quick and just say, this is what we need. And there isn't any reason why you shouldn't do it. That was kind of the thing. Just kind of bring it to the front attention of the discussion. It's pretty shocking in your letter. You say, in 2022, the Yuma sector ranked highest in apprehension for any U.S. Border Patrol sector, as well as second in violence towards Border Patrol agents. And we experienced 70 deaths of migrants that year the highest in the history of the sector. I mean, that's a pretty sobering number. It's very sobering. Our agents are our neighbors. They're our friends. They're our family members. We go to church with them. We see them at the third, just people like you and I. And to know that they're being attacked for doing what their job is, and the administration doesn't seem to care about that, that's crazy. And But then just to have people die, 70 people die from exposure. I can't imagine that kind of death, but we should not be facilitating that kind of risk to people. And with this current approach, we are facilitating people being abandoned. Essentially what happens most of the time when people are abandoned in the desert or they're given a path to travel through the desert that isn't sustainable to achieve before you run out of water and then people die and you can find them in groups. We found them in groups as large as 17 people at one time. Wow. 17 people were dead. Yeah, it's been a couple of years, but the cartels treat people as a commodity. They're just like the drugs they push is something to earn them money. They don't care about the drug. They don't care about the people. They're there to earn money. So if it's not going to be a financial advantage to them, they just cut them free. And whatever happens, happens to them. I noticed that Yuma is not the only city that declared states of emergency. Brownsville, Texas issued a disaster declaration. Laredo, Texas, declared a state of emergency. The El Paso, Texas mayor declared a state of emergency. And I know because we did a podcast with El Paso that they've moved dramatically towards seeing this as a huge problem, which they weren't sure a year ago, but apparently now they really are beginning to be worried by the scale of it. 
So I declared in 21, and then Yuma County and the, the cities in Yuma County, they declared just this last December. And the states had a declaration for about a year and a half, even with change of administration in our governor's office and the change of party, they've maintained that declaration of state emergency. So I think that's a very overwhelming sense that there's a need that the administration is just deliberately ignoring. From your perspective, do you draw a sharp distinction in your own mind between people who are here legally and are following the rules and people who are coming across illegally? A hundred percent. That is a sharp, bright, thick line. My father-in-law emigrated at age 18. So it's very real to me. It's very real to my family and to most of the human community. 65% of our community is Hispanic. And of those, a very large, and I don't have the number, but a very large number can relate to those that emigrated legally in the last two or three generations. How vital is legal immigration to your agricultural industry? It is critical. If legal immigration went away, we would have the winter harvest would better be all automated because there just isn't a workforce, an American workforce that's growing, that's going into that field, that's actually diminishing and it's getting older year after year. But if we have about half of the workforce is foreign labor, you can't harvest all the thousands of acres of lettuce that we have during the winter without that full workforce. Is lettuce your primary crop? Leafy greens. So the statistic is that 90% of the leafy greens that the United States and Canada consumes during the winter months comes through Yuma. That's wild. We feed the world, at least the continent, and we grow all year round. So we grow lettuce in the winter, melons in the summer, corn, wheat, all those staples that you see in the grocery store that you consume every day without thinking about it that comes from here. I had no idea you were that big a producer. I've somehow was brainwashed into believing it was all of the Central Valley of California. Yeah, they do a good job of making you believe that, but that's the summer side. So there are our sister community in the summer side. And this has always been one of the challenges in that having legal temporary workers in agricultural areas is really vital to the production system. Yes, and there needs to be reform in that area too. And when we talk about, every time we bring up immigration, we're talking about illegal immigration. The farmers and the industries that rely upon the foreign worker programs suffer because we don't ever get to address those reforms. For instance, H-2A workers need to be provided housing, which makes sense in Nebraska or Kansas. But when most of our H-2A workers actually live just south of the border and they want to go home each night to their family and have a good quality of life, the farmers here still have to provide housing. Well, that's a waste and it has to be set aside. It's not like we could use it to solve the homeless issue or anything else. It has to be set aside. So it's a real waste of the program and it's very specific to how we operate here in the Southwest. So I don't expect that to be something that everyone has to change, but it has to be done through law because it's in law. Do most of them, are there sister cities right across the border that they live in or where do they tend to live? Right. San Luis, Rio, Colorado is the port city in Mexico. And that's where it's about 150,000, almost 200,000 people live in that city. That's where the majority of the workers that do go to Mexico every day, that's where they live.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March to the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can pre-order March to the Majority right now at Gingrich360.com slash book, and it'll be shipped directly to you on June 6th. Don't miss out on this special offer to pre-order my new book today. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. standpoint of particularly illegal immigration, what has the impact been on your healthcare system? So last year, we had a very dramatic impact. The surge that was coming through 
seem to have a large and overwhelming number of pregnant women, people with medical conditions, and some of them weren't even going through the border patrol station. They were just coming straight from the border to have their babies and all that. Well, today in the United States, you're going to have a baby, you're 24 hours, unless there's something wrong, you're out. Well, when you don't have any prenatal care, you're coming through a very difficult journey. The baby's going to be probably underway. It creates a larger medical need than what we experience as Americans. So that consumes a larger part of the capacity in our hospital. We have one hospital here. It's a large hospital, but it's just the one provider. And so that ended up pushing out the scheduled deliveries, the C-sections, those kind of things. Some people ended up going to other communities because they couldn't get the time they wanted here. But at the end of the day, the hospital here was $26 million in care that they could not get reimbursed by the federal government. And they're out those dollars right now. Was that $26 million for illegal immigrants or was that just in general? No, that was just for migrant care, just illegal immigrant care when they come through. If the federal government fails to patrol the border and you end up with a $26 million health bill, there ought to be some way you could sue the government to pay for the problem it caused. You would think that would be the case. I would 100% agree. And I think the hospital's perspective is that. And they're going to do what they got to do to help people. That's their job. They're not going to turn people away because the federal government's not going to pay them. But it's going to impact their bottom line, the services they can provide, those kind of things. I don't see any reason why it cannot be reimbursed, which is, again, if you had a national declaration of emergency, you could have that discussion a whole lot easier. If President Biden got your letter and then listened to our podcast, let's say he announced a state of emergency, how would that change things and what would you hope that that would lead to? I think right off, it needs to provide the responses that we normally would see from an emergency. That means boots on the ground people handling the situation, transportation provided to those that need it so that it's not borne upon the local communities or nonprofits. That would be the very first thing that makes sense to me is when a hurricane comes, they prepare to go into the area and help, right? And they might have partners that are nonprofits, but FEMA's out front leading the charge, providing the tents and all the other fun stuff. So that would be the bottom line. But then you need to talk about reimbursing things like the hospital or whoever's occurred expenses that are definitely tied to the situation at hand. And they might not fit the regular process of applying for a grant from FEMA, but they're definitely undeniably tied to the situation at hand. So those are the things that just right off the bat, it changes the discussion. I'll tell you a little bit of insight I've had in the last two years talking to the administration and talking to the secretary's office is as soon as they're done processing people, they believe the cities own the situation, that it is now the responsibility of the cities with their nonprofits to address the humanitarian issues. That's a problem. Because they've created the issue, they're facilitating the issue, and then just to dump it off on the cities, that's a philosophical difference that isn't right. And so I very much stress that this is a federal issue. The cities are here to assist as we can, but it needs to be led and it needs to be held at the federal level. I mean, I don't understand that reasoning because it seems to me that this is entirely caused by the federal government failing to do its job. There's no provision of the Constitution that cities have a responsibility for people who aren't technically even supposed to be here. 
hundred percent. You don't even need to come to the border, although I think it's eye-opening. And if you ever want to come to Yuma, I'd be happy to show you around. But all you do is look at numbers. Two million people over a year is by far higher than anything we've ever seen. 330 or 310,000 through the Yuma area. That's three times the size of my city. How do these numbers just don't jump off the page and say, yeah, we got to do something out of the ordinary here? Why do you think they don't see this as a crisis? This is a really tough question to figure out, but I think it really has to do with having to admit that there's something not working the way they think it should work. And I think that's evidenced by the lack of trips to the border. I know sometimes those are just camera shots or whatever, but we just had the governor of Montana in and he was blown away. He had no idea. You have to kind of come and see humanity at this level and what we're dealing with day to day to understand it and why those numbers, it makes those numbers have more life, more relevancy to why things are important. The Biden administration has announced that they're going to send troops to the border. I mean, do you see any evidence of this actually making a difference? Actually, what they're sending them for, no, because our local border patrol station has already filled all those positions with non-border patrol agents. It's logistics work, it's observations, because they're being sent here under Title 10. If they were to send them here under Title 32, where they're in more of a military role, they could then directly support Border Patrol. And so when Border Patrol's out and there's 200 people that have come on across the border, it doesn't take a contingent of 30 Border Patrol agents. It might take a contingent of five with 30 National Guardsmen or Army. And so they're able to do more crowd control and direct engagement with migrants. That's where you would have an impact. But the current plan, it's a good number, but it's not going to be effective at least not here. It's almost like they design it to fail. Design it to fail or they're just completely ignorant about what the situation is on the border. I mean, if you don't understand the process and you're not talking to the people who truly need the help, you're going to come up with solutions that don't make sense, that aren't relevant. I want to thank you. You were a great guest a little over a year and a half ago. You're a great guest again. I can't imagine what your every day is like as you go around the city that you're the mayor of and try to figure out how to solve all these things. And I really appreciate your courage and your directness in writing the letter to the president. I think it was a very important point in creating the right dialogue and the right conversation. And I hope people in Washington are responsive. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on your show. I've always admired you and your time in office and ever since then. And yeah, we're making time for Newt. Thank you to my guest, Mayor Douglas Nichols. You can learn more about the border crisis in Yuma, Arizona, and all along the southern border on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.